James chapter 5. We have found in this epistle many instructions for us to live holy and godly lives. We have had the instruction given to us on what pure religion consists of. And it consists of an unspotted life, an unspotted tongue, love of the brethren, no partiality, and so much more. The epistle started quickly and bluntly, and it finishes just as quickly and bluntly. There's no salutations. There's no descriptions of who wrote it. There's no statement as to where he might be located. It just concludes with a final lesson. I hope that you will remember what we've covered so far through this epistle and be thankful for it. I hope that we will all guard our tongues, that we will make sure that our relationships are based on the wisdom that is from above and not the wisdom from beneath, that we will remember that there is such a thing as spiritual adultery, and that we will ask God to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts lest we be double-minded, and that we will do so ourselves, and so much more. The true proof of whether a person has been justified or saved has been given to us in the second chapter of this epistle, and that is faith and works. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Today we looked at verses 14 and 15 and saw that the elders of the early church had the power of healing that had been given to the apostles and transmitted to them. And the prayer of faith should save the sick. And if there were sins that were causing that sickness, those sins would be forgiven by that prayer of faith. We then came to a second lesson in verses 16 through 18, where we are to confess our faults one to another. Those are the sins between us. They're called the smaller matters of life. But they're called sins. They're called trespasses. We're to confess them and to be reconciled about them and to get them out of the way between our prayers going up into heaven. And when those are out of the way... We can pray one for another, and we may be healed by those prayers of ordinary men, by the extraordinary providence of God as He works in the affairs of this life. But it's ordinary prayers by ordinary men who have their lives right with the Lord. We saw that Elias was given to us as an example to encourage us that though it might say it's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much, we would not lose hope. That because Elias was subject to passions like us, we can pray with the same confidence that he had. And he was able to avail this much. He stopped rain from heaven for three and a half years, and then he started it again. And that is availing something great with the Lord. We come to the final lesson of the book, and with this final lesson, the epistle closes. There is no grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, because Paul didn't write it. And so we don't have that here. We just have a final lesson. And this is a lesson that applies to all of us in our relationship to each other and why we have a church. And here are the words. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. This is our duty toward one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in a church capacity. God has put us together in a body where we can help one another. This is true Bible soul winning. This is the closest verse you can come to in the New Testament that describes soul winning. Because it says 
that the man is able to save a soul from death. That sounds like soul saving and soul winning. But it's among brethren. And we use this passage and we use it often because it shows us the kind of soul winning the New Testament teaches. God has not called us or told us anywhere to save souls from hell. Those that are not brethren, those that are lost, their name's not in the book of life, on their way to hell, that is not given to us as an assignment anywhere. But here in these two verses, we have an assignment to care about each other. And that it is a noble and great work that we do when we see a brother in error and we help him get back into the way of righteousness and into the way of truth. Brethren, brethren, if any of you, the twelve tribes scattered abroad, begotten, born again, beloved brethren, justified by Christ, holding to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him. This is the one-on-work work, that the one-on-one work that we all owe toward each other, and it's a noble and wondrous thing when we do it. We've been through the epistle so that you know what kind of brethren these are. These are born-again, saved, justified brethren that have a hope of heaven. That's why the brother of low degree can rejoice. That's why the brother of high degree can rejoice as well, because their sights are set on things outside this earth. But among them... Among the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are easily tempted and can easily fall out of the way of righteousness, away from the truth, and get ourselves into our own ways. And the one-on-one, soul-winning effort that the New Testament teaches is right here about converting those persons, one by one, back into the way of righteousness. Brethren, if any of you, if any of you that I'm speaking to Not those outside your churches, but those in the churches. If any of you do err from the truth, leave the truth, wander out of the way of understanding, start doing things your way instead of God's way, and one convert him. And here's the real point. Let him know. Let this man that does the converting work on the erring brother, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. It is a great and noble thing, and it is an important part of a church. I have learned in my years of looking at churches and hearing what they preach and teach and write as their mission statements, that the real one-on-one duties that the New Testament teaches are usually neglected for some other distraction, like the fulfilling of the Great Commission, or... Praise and worship instead of the importance of this role that should be in our lives. If this is practiced on an individual basis, a church will be kept whole and righteous because there will be a one-on-one activity taking place in keeping everyone in the way of righteousness and in the way of truth. And so his final conclusion is, after listing, what do we want to say? How many lessons did we have? Altogether, the lessons of the book of James. Twenty? Thirty, fifty, in light of all those lessons, if a man wanders out of the way of that instruction of God's apostle, let that man know that spots it, that goes after that brother and converts him, that he is doing a wonderful work 
at preserving the truth. And with that, the epistle ends. And so we want to look and be reminded of the duty that we have toward one another. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, this is not those lost out in the world. These are us inside. We lose a point of doctrine. Think of the church at Corinth. There were, there were teachers that had come in among that church that were teaching them the resurrection was past and overthrew the faith of some. We can err from the truth in our practice. We can start living ungodly lives. It doesn't matter whether truth is a body of doctrine, a point of doctrine, or whether it's a point of practice. It's all part of the truth. It's all part of the godliness that is according to the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we still have the flesh with us, because the world is still trying to seduce us, Christians themselves wander out of the way of righteousness and truth. It's our job to help them get back into it. If any of you do err from the truth, you leave the truth, you leave New Testament religion either in faith or in practice, either in doctrine or in how you're living. Let that man know that spots that and goes after that brother, converts him back, converts this sinner. These are sins that are being dealt with. Converts the sinner from the error of his way back into the way of righteousness. That man is doing a great thing and he's accomplishing two ends. He is saving a soul from death and he's hiding a multitude of sins. And so we want to look at this and see God encouraging us to take the book of James and remember it for ourselves, but also remember it for our families and for everyone else in here. And not just the book of James, but everything else we're taught in the New Testament. Conversion. What is it? You know, the world confuses conversion and regeneration, but we're not confused. Regeneration is God's instilling of eternal life and spiritual life into a dead sinner. It is a creative act of God. It is spontaneous. It happens instantaneously when God regenerates us by giving us a new heart. All of a sudden we have a new man. And that new man knows the law of God and wants to keep the law of God. Regeneration is purely the work of God through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Conversion is something very different. That's when we are changed in our lifestyle by obeying the Word of God. We convert, and our whole life is a conversion process by hearing more and more truth and adapting our lives more and more to obey that truth. Conversion is not one experience. Most of the churches in our city today are going to have an invitation at the end of the service, and if you were to come forward and say the sinner's prayer, they would call that conversion. Just by mouthing some words. And that may be a part of conversion coming forward and claiming that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But we find through the Scriptures that men are converted over and over and over again. And we have that duty toward each other to help convert one another over and over again. Conversion sees, hears, understands, and repents. And then God forgives those who are converting. Because when we hear and we confess and we repent of our sins, God forgives. Look at Luke 22 and let's just look at a few Bible examples of conversion. Because it says, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way is doing two things. Before we look at the, the two things, let's see what conversion is. It's not regeneration. 
It's a pity to read some theologians, even men that we might esteem, for other things that they believed in practice, not making a clear distinction between regeneration and conversion. People are already regenerated, but they fall out of the way of truth, and they need to be converted back into it. They've changed in error. Now they need to be changed back into truth. Peter needed to be converted. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. After the Lord, after the supper, the Passover supper where the Lord Jesus Christ gave them the instructions for the Lord's Supper, in verse 31 we read, The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter had a weakness. And that was an impetuous confidence in himself rather than a steadfast faith in the Lord. And so he goes on to promise that he is willing to go to prison. He's even willing to go to death in following the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord already knows that Satan's going to come after Peter that night. But Jesus was going to pray for him. And he would be converted, and then he could strengthen his brethren. What happened to Peter that night? Peter was faced with a little maid. He denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Faced with others that accused him of being of Galilee because his speech gave him away. They said, we we know that you're associated with that Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied the Lord. He showed his weakness and his lack of faith and commitment that night. When he stood there on the last time and he heard the cock crow, And he looked over at the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord looked at him. And it's one of the touching passages in the New Testament. He went out and wept bitterly. He knew that he had failed his Lord. He had lied. He had cursed. And with oaths and swearing, he had denied that he even knew Jesus of Nazareth. Was he converted? He went out and wept bitterly. He was torn up over what he had done. And he confessed that, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him very early on resurrection morning. That is the morning when he he showed himself to his disciples alive. And he worked with Peter, and he told Peter, he asked Peter that if if Peter loved him or not, and he asked him three times to go back over those three events of denying him, and Peter was converted. And Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Do you have to ask me three times? Yes, he had to ask him three times. And Peter was converted. Now, now, we don't believe that Peter was unregenerate for three and a half years of following the Lord Jesus Christ and then was regenerated here in Luke chapter 22. We believe that Peter had been regenerated all along, but he needed to be converted back because his, his fear got the best of him. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. What is conversion? It's changing your life. It's changing your lifestyle, the way you live, the way you talk the way you think, in order to adapt it to what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 18. This is what we want to do for each other. This is what we have to do for each other. Because this is something that this epistle commands us to do. And it honors those that do it by describing the great work they do. It is one-on-one soul winning of us looking after each other and keeping each other in the way of righteousness, in the way of truth. Matthew 18.3, Jesus said to his disciples, what's a disciple? It's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in Matthew 18.3, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, 
ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. They had a problem with a lack of humility. Their pride was too much. And here is conversion being explained as a changing from a proud approach to life to a humble approach to life as little children. Conversion being required. Look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. David speaking of what he wanted to do. If the Lord would forgive him and restore to him the joy of his salvation. He wanted to teach transgressors God's ways. And in verse 13 of Psalm 51, sinners shall be converted unto thee. That's what David wanted to do. And here's how David describes this work of conversion. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. David asked the Lord, Lord, you've broken my bones. I've lost the joy of my salvation. Please send your, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Bless me again, and I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's the law of the Lord. When we take the, the Word of God and we read in it something that we ought to be doing, and we put that into practice in our lives, we have been converted because we have changed. We can convert electricity from AC to DC. We can convert different things. And we can convert based on the Word of God. And this is what we do for each other. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if any of you... There's the key to those two verses. If any of you... This is not going out and getting names in the book of life. This is not winning the lost at any cost. This is not fulfilling the Great Commission. This is serving one another. And this is what makes a church great when instead of being obsessed and consumed with your own little life, you get outside of your little life in order to look after others and help keep them in the way of righteousness. And if we all did that, that is what makes a great church. Every joint, every part contributing so that we're all being edified in love and growing up to the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. But if we all go home and forget each other, if we see error among members and we don't correct it, this church will not survive, just like all the others before us that didn't survive because they didn't practice these two verses. Here it's described in Galatians 6. Brethren, starts off the same way. You'll see how similar it is. If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I taught on that when we went through Galatians 6. Brethren, if a man, if someone among us is overtaken in a fault, how do we know it's among us? Because it says restore him. You can only restore someone who is already there. So it's among these brethren of the Galatia, churches of Galatia that were to be restored. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, go after that man. Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Don't go after him as in any self-righteousness. Don't go after him as being his Lord. Go after him in a spirit of meekness, because if God doesn't preserve you, you're going down just like he went down. And this is the work of James chapter 5. Finding a brother overtaken in a fault, in error, sinning in his life by doctrine or by practice and bringing him back 
converting him, changing him back in the way of righteousness. That isn't just a ministerial task. It's one assigned to the church as well. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The one-on-one, the one-to-another duties of the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren. Here we are dealing with brethren again. Warn them that are unruly. This is not a, this is not a pastoral epistle. This is a general epistle to the saints that were at Thessalonica. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. There are four duties summarized in one verse that we owe toward each other as brethren. And the first one is to warn the unruly. When we see someone that is not following the rule of Scripture, that's being unruly, we are to go after them According to this verse, Galatians 6 told us how to do it. Psalm 19 told us what the standard is and what the rule is. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Proverbs 27 would say open rebuke is better than secret love. Proverbs 27 would say faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It doesn't matter how much someone loves you, says they love you, or whether they hug and kiss you, It's what they do for you to help you stay in the way of righteousness. That's real love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Elihu was a faithful friend to Job. You know, Elihu stood up in Job chapter 32 and Job chapter 33 and, and said to Job, You are not right in what you are doing. God is greater than man. God has every right to do what He has done to you and you are wrong in what you are doing. That was a true friend. That was a brother converting a brother from the error of his way. And Elihu went on for several chapters to point out the fact that Job did not have any right to bring God into question for what had happened in his life. How about Abigail? She met David out there and she stopped Abigail. I mean, Abigail stopped David from sinning against Nabal and blotting his reputation. And it's so wonderful to read 1 Samuel 25 Because David says to her that he has received her, he has accepted her admonition, and he was thankful to the God of heaven for rescuing him from doing something that he should not have done. And that's because a woman in this case went and did something about it rather than letting him go ahead and do it. And that is what we want to do for each other. The one brother who turns his erring brother from his folly, has done a great service and work. This is real soul winning. You know, our website gets questions from time to time about what is a soul winner. Because they read some of our Proverbs. And they read Proverbs 11.30 that says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. But what is real soul winning? See, when they read that, when they read, He that winneth souls is wise, they have a preconceived notion that is saving people from going to hell. But when we read it, in its context, the book of Proverbs, it is saving a man from his own ways. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord pondereth the hearts, and we're getting them back into the way of righteousness. We have verses that explain Proverbs 11.30, like 3.18 says, Wisdom is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every one that retaineth her. It's getting a person back into the way of righteousness. 
And there's many other verses. Look, listen to 15.4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the Spirit. The ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise. The ear that hears reproof of the way of life abides among the wise. There's conversion over and over again, and it's soul winning. It's what we want to do for our families and for our church. First of all, James told us that soul winners save a soul from death. And that is hard for some people to understand, save a soul from death. Because that sounds like eternal death, the second death. What kind of death is being talked about there? Remember what the prodigal's father said when the prodigal came back home? This my son was dead and is alive. He's come back from the life. But the prodigal never died physically. He didn't die spiritually. He died to fellowship with his father. There was no longer a union between father and son because that fellowship had been broken. He was still his son, biologically speaking, but that's the use of the word dead. That's one kind of death that your conversion accomplishes. It saves a soul from the lack of fellowship with God because this sinner has lost fellowship with God because when we sin, we lose our fellowship with God. It's restored by getting back into the way of righteousness and being converted. You know that story about the prodigal. Remember what it says about a a widow, a young widow, who's taken into the number foolishly by a church. Paul warned Timothy about them, that their lust would not allow them to be content being single and serving the church and being supported by the church. Because he says such widows are dead while she liveth. Now, you know, a skeptic would look at the Bible and say it's just speaking out of both sides of its mouth. But when the apostle says she's dead while she liveth, she's alive physically, but she's dead toward fellowship and service toward God because she's given herself to a a desire and pursuit of the things of this life. That is how we save a soul from death. There she's still alive physically, and this erring brother is still alive physically, but he's lost his fellowship and relationship with God. His relationship as far as fellowship. He's still a son of God. His name is still in the book of life. But he's lost his fellowship. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. There is a death. There's physical death. There's spiritual death. There's a second death. But there's several more deaths. There's death to fellowship that I've just mentioned. There's death to victorious, joyful Christian living. Look at this one. Ephesians 5.14. Ephesians 5.14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. There's a man, to a degree, has been overcome by the world. He's no longer living victoriously with God as his Father. He's dead. Not, he's not dead spiritually in the sense of chapter 2 of this epistle. He's dead to fellowship. He's dead to victorious Christian living. And so the apostle says, Awake thou that sleepest. You're sleeping as a Christian. You're acting dead like a Christian. Get out of those sins that the world is engaged in and live for Christ. You know, if you don't understand the different distinctions and rightly divide the word dead, then you'll get into chapter 5 and think that you there's an act that needs to be done in order for a person to be regenerated, even though everyone in chapter 5 was already regenerated in chapter 2. 
Save souls from death. There it is. Proverbs 21, 16 says this. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. The man that wanders out of the way of understanding. The way of understanding is what's taught us in the Word of God. A man wanders out of it. He's going to remain in the congregation of the dead unless someone goes after him and converts him back into the way of righteousness, back into the way of understanding, and then he can be delivered from death, the congregation of the dead. His life can be wasted by living it outside of fellowship with God and outside of living victoriously for Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can regenerate and give the new birth, which is life from the dead which is quickening. And only He can raise our bodies from the dead. But we can save souls from death to fellowship. It must mean that, brethren. James 5, 19 and 20 must be talking about that because it's describing something we do toward brethren. Then we hide a multitude of sins. When a man's a sinner and he's out sinning against the way of righteousness, he's wandered out of the way of understanding, he's disobeying God, he's left the truth, he's now living his own ideas, He's doing what is right in his own eyes. He's heaping up sins. When we convert him, we hide those sins because we bring God's God's blood over his sins. God casts the sins behind his back because conversion involves repenting and confessing the sins that you've been guilty of. And so this sinner, the sinner who's left the way of righteousness, who's left the truth, when we convert him, conversion includes always repentance and confession of sins. And when we confess and repent our sins, God forgives us and blots out those transgressions that were there that could have brought us His judgment. I mean, there could have been physical death. The word save a soul from death could involve physical death like it did those at Corinth. They abused the Lord's Supper. And there were some that were already dead and it was too late to save them from that death because the Lord had already taken them but we hide a multitude of sins. By bringing repentance and confession into a man's life, the sins that he's committed, no matter how high he's heaped them up, if we get him to convert, they're blotted out. The Lord is incredibly merciful to those that repent and confess. And we can lead them to it by leading each other back into the way of righteousness to make that confession. Look at Psalm 103 and just a few of the verses where God describes how far He puts our transgressions from us, which is His mercy and response to us confessing and forsaking them. And that's what we do when we get a man that's in the way of error. What is conversion? It's repenting from one lifestyle and changing to another lifestyle. The first act is repentance. The next is obedience. And when we get a man to do those two things, that's how we get him back into the way of righteousness. Look at Psalm 103, verse 12. Verse 11 says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. He pities us like a father pities his children. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The Lord forgives our sins. Look at Isaiah 38. Some of you may have read this last evening. Isaiah 38. Behold, this is, this is Hezekiah. 
King Hezekiah has been told he's going to die. He makes a prayer to the Lord. Isaiah comes in and gives him 15 more years. Isaiah 38, 17, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness. But thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. How do we hide something from someone when we're facing them? We put it behind our back because we don't want them to be able to see what we've got. And the Lord takes our sins and puts them behind His back because He forgives us. These were sins in Hezekiah's life. He knew he was guilty before the Lord. He prayed for peace. He had great bitterness. He was messed up after Isaiah told him, Thou shalt surely die. But thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. That's his prayer of thanksgiving for what God had done for him. We hide a multitude of sins. We bring the blood of Jesus Christ over it. And how do we do that? Because we get that person to confess and repent for the way of ungodliness they've been living in and get them back into the way of godliness where they should be. There's, there's many other comforting verses just like this one. These, those are comforting words. Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Very comforting words. And there's more like them, but we don't have time for them. You know what the Lord said? The Lord said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's what we can offer an erring brother. When a brother is off in sin, that's what we get to tell him. Look at this. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. You feel hopeless? You feel like the sin has possession of you and you can't let go of it? Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, as red as crimson, they shall be as white as snow and as white as wool. And so we give them that comfort and that promise. And that's how we hide a multitude of sins, by spreading the blood of Jesus Christ over it, which covers it from the judgment of God. Because our Father will chasten unconfessed sin. He will let us go for a while. And if we will be hasty with each other, we can preserve ourselves from the chastening judgment of God upon our lives. He'll toss them behind His back if we'll confess them and repent. That's how David was so righteous, even though he was a sinner. Because he'd been turned back in the way of righteousness. And one of those events we know about, it was by Abigail. And oh to God for wives like Abigail that would help all the men of this church, when it's appropriate and in a proper way, to turn away from foolishness and back into the way of righteousness. Repentance is everything when it comes to sin. It's everything. Paul wrote the church at Corinth and said, because you showed so much zeal in your repentance... You have altogether cleared yourself in this matter. All their sins were hid. They were buried under the forgiveness of God. They were out of sight, out of mind, gone. Which is what we want to do when we get a brother back into the way of righteousness. He lets us start over with a clean slate over and over again. Look at Proverbs 17 and verse 9. Proverbs 17, 9. We save a soul from death. There's a man drying up without the blessing of the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is grieved in his life. The Spirit is the life of the body. The Spirit is the life of our Christian experience. And if that Spirit is grieved, we are drying up in the dust of death. We save a soul from death by getting him back in the way of righteousness and following the Lord. And we hide a multitude of sins by bringing the blood of Jesus Christ over it and covering it because conversion is repentance. And obedience. It's repenting of the false way of living and it's obedience to the right way. 
Proverbs 17.9 He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. Here's a brother that knows about another brother's sin. It could be a fault between them. It could be a sin that he's committed against God. What does he do with it? He covers a transgression. What is that? That is true love. When your brother has sinned against you and he has repented, or when your brother has sinned against God and you were able to lead him back into the way of righteousness, covering it is the loving, godly, righteous thing to do. But then there are others that want to go and repeat that matter. And what does it say about that? He that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. That is divisive, whispering, slandering, tail-bearing, and backbiting. To repeat it. Because if God's forgiven a man, he's his sins, he's cast them behind his back. They're as far as the east is from the west. He's thrown them into the sea. The other expressions of the Bible, they're gone. And if we cover them, we're seeking love because that is love. That's how we love. When God forgives someone, we forgive them. We don't repeat the matter because that separates between very friends. Our goal is 1911. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. We hide it. We cover it. We bury it. We go on. We don't remember it. We don't bring it up. We don't repeat it. That's a glorious man. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. And so, first of all, God puts his blood over our sins, and what was red with guilt and shame before God becomes white as snow and white as wool. And then we, that brother seeking love, bury that event ourselves. We don't repeat it because that would separate between very friends. We seek love by forgiving as well as God has forgiven us and because God has forgiven that man. This is our duty as a church. We end the epistle of James. This epistle is full of things that we should be doing. From counting it all joy when we fall into divers temptations in the first chapter, all the way down to chapter 5, confessing our little faults between ourselves so that our prayers can heal each other. And everything in between. And what are we supposed to do about it? James just closes out right like this. What are we supposed to do about it? We're to make sure that all of our brothers and sisters are living by this rule. We're to warn them if they're unruly. We're to bring them back into the way of righteousness. We are to restore them. We are to convert them from the error of their way and thus save a soul from dying. Dying to fellowship with God in victorious, happy Christian living and hide a multitude of sins by covering it with the blood of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless us to do this for each other. This is what makes a great church. This is a duty that we all have toward each other. May the Lord bless us to do it and not just to hear these words. Remember, it was this epistle that said, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.